Section 17 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 4, Chapter 1. Quote, so, in this snare which holds me and appalls me, where honor hardly lives, nor loves remain. End quote. H. Belloc, on Battersea Bridge. The mist shrouded every mountain top, sagging downwards in some places like the roof of a tent, and in others where a perpetual draught blew down a quarry, streaming out like smoke. How different from last week, when, cold as it was up there, the top of the Koreatic Pass had presented to Major Wyndham's eyes a view from Badenoch to the hills of sky. Today, recrossing it and looking back, he could hardly distinguish through the grayish-white blanket more than three or four of its many traverses winding away below him. But here, on the lower levels of the mountain road, where it prepared to debouch into that which ran along the great glen, this clogging mist had become a fine and most penetrating rain, bedewing every inch of the rider's cloak and uniform, his hat, the edges of his wig, his very eyebrows and lashes, and insinuating itself down his collar. Major Wyndham did not know which was the more objectionable form of moisture, and wished it were late enough in the day to cease exposing himself to either, and to put up for the night at Fort Augustus, which he should reach in another twenty minutes or so. But it was still too early for that, and, bearer as he was of a dispatch from Lord Albemarle to the Duke of Cumberland, he must push on beyond Fort Augustus before nightfall, must, indeed, reach the only halting place between that spot and Inverness, the tiny inn, known, from Wade's occupation of it when he was making the road, as the general's hut. However, he intended to stop at Fort Augustus to bait the horses, and to make an inquiry. It was six days since he had left Guthrie's camp, and he was not altogether surprised today to find it gone, but, to judge from the litter lying about, only recently gone. There was, therefore, no one to give him news of Ardroy, but he was sure that, if the Jacobite had been made prisoner, he would have been sent or taken to Fort Augustus, and he could get news of him there. That night in the Sheeling, just a week ago, seemed to Keith much farther off than that, and the emotions he had known then to have lost their edge. Oh, gad, what a fit of philanthropy I had on me that day, he reflected. If Hangman Hawley came to know of it, he would sneer at him, and the rest of the staff too. Luckily, they would not know. So consoling himself, and cursing the rain anew, he came to Fort Augustus, or rather, to what remained of it. Its highland captors who, during their attack upon it, had partially demolished the new fort, had, on the summons to face Cumberland, blown up and fired most of the residue. A small temporary garrison had been sent there after the victory to secure the abandoned stronghold for the government, but it had now been taken possession of by a larger force in the shape of the Earl of Loudoun's regiment, under the Earl himself, and eighteen independent companies. These had only marched in a few hours before, in consequence of which influx the whole place was in a state of great turmoil. There was so little accommodation in the ruined fort that a small village of tents was being erected in the meadows by the mouth of the Tarf, and between the confusion of camp pitching and the fact that nearly everyone whom he encountered was a newcomer, 
Keith found it difficult to discover who was or had been responsible for prisoners sent in before Lord Loudon's arrival. He did, however, elicit the information that Major Guthrie's detachment was now somewhere on the road between Fort Augustus and Inverness. And at last, though he did not succeed in seeing anybody directly responsible, he was told that a wounded Cameron, said to be the head of one of the cadet branches of the clan, had been captured the previous week and sent in by that very detachment, and that he had been given proper care and was progressing favorably. That was all Keith wanted to know for the moment, and he delayed no longer. A certain vague disquiet which had teased him during the past week about Guthrie's possible treatment of his prisoner was allayed. For the rest, he had already made his plans about Ardroy. It was at Inverness, with Cumberland, that he could really do you in service, especially if the Duke did take him on to his personal staff. To his Royal Highness he could then represent what he owed to the captured rebel, and before he himself returned with the Commander-in-Chief to Flanders, he might very well have the satisfaction of knowing that the object of his philanthropy had been set at liberty. As he turned away from Fort Augustus, where the vista of Loch Ness was completely blotted out in rain, and addressed himself to the long, steep climb up the Inverness Road, Keith's thoughts went back to the Earl of Albemarle in Perth, craving, like himself, to get overseas once more. Whence, though colonel of the Coldstream Guards, he had come to serve as a volunteer under Cumberland. His lordship, who had, moreover, greatly preferred commanding the front line in the recent battle to his present post with the Hessian troops in Perth, had lamented his situation quite openly to Cumberland's messenger. He detested Scotland, he announced, and had fears, from a sentence in the dispatch which that messenger had delivered to him, that he might be appointed to succeed Hawley in this uncongenial country. Having thus, somewhat unwisely, betrayed his sentiments to Major Wyndham, he was more or less obliged to beg his discretion, in promising which Keith had revealed his own fellow-feeling about the North. When they parted, therefore, Lord Albemarle had observed with much graciousness that if this horrid fate of succeeding General Hawley should overtake him, he would not forget Major Wyndham, though he supposed that the latter might not then be in Scotland for him to remember. No. Keith, though grateful for his lordship's good will, distinctly hoped that he would not. He trusted to be by then in a drier climate, and a country less afflicted with steep roads. Less afflicted also with punitive measures, though, since Perth was not in Inverness, he was not so much dominated by those painful impressions of brutality as he had been a week ago. The greater part of the lengthy and tiresome ascent from the level of Loch Ness was now over, and Keith and Dougal Mackay found themselves again more or less in the region of mist, but on a flat stretch of road with a strip of moorland on one hand. Water glimmered ahead on the left. It was little Loch Tarf, its charms dimmed by the weather. Keith just noticed its presence, tightened his reins, and, trotting forward on the welcome level, continued his dreams about the future. Twenty-five yards farther, and these were brought abruptly to a close. Without the slightest warning, there came a sharp report on his right, and a bullet sped in front of him, so close that it frightened his horse. Himself considerably startled, too, he tried simultaneously to soothe the beast and to tug out a pistol from his holster. Meanwhile, Dougal Mackay, with great promptitude and loud Gallic cries, 
was urging his more docile steed over the heather towards a boulder which he evidently suspected of harbouring the marksman. As soon as he could get his horse under control, Keith also made over the strip of moorland, and arrived in time to see a wild, tattered, tartan-clad figure, with a musket in its hands, slide down from the top of the boulder, drop onto hands and knees among the heather and bog-myrtle, and begin to wriggle away like a snake. Major Wyndham levelled his pistol and fired, somewhat at random, for his horse was still plunging, and the Highlander collapsed and lay still. Keith trotted towards him. The man had already abandoned his musket and lay in a heap on his side. The Englishman was just going to dismount when shouts from Dougal Mackay, who had ridden round the boulder, stayed him. Do not be going near him, sir. The man will not be hit, whatever. And as this statement coincided with Keith's own impression that his bullet had gone wide, he stayed in the saddle and covered the would-be assassin with his other pistol, while Mackay, who certainly did not lack courage, slid off his own horse and came running. And it was even as Mackay had said. At the sound of the feet swishing through the heather, the heap of dirty tartan lying there was suddenly, with one bound, a living figure which, leaping up dirk in hand, rushed straight, not at the dismounted orderly, but at the officer on the horse. Had Keith not had his pistol ready, he could hardly have saved himself, mounted though he was, from a deadly thrust. The man was at his horse's head when he fired. This time he did not miss. He could not. "'I suppose I've blown his head to pieces,' he said next moment, with a slightly shaken laugh. "'Indeed, I will be thinking so,' replied Mackay, on his knees in the heather. "'But it will be best to make sure.' And he put his hand to his own dirk. "'No, no,' commanded Keith, as he bent from the saddle, for somehow the idea of stabbing a dead man— even a potential murderer, was repugnant to him. It is not necessary. He was killed instantly. There could be small doubt of that. One side of the Highlander's bearded face was all blackened by the explosion, and as he lay there, his eyes wide and fixed, the blood ran backwards through his scorched and tangled hair like a brook among water weeds. The ball had struck high up on the brow. It came to Keith with a sense of shock, that the very torn and faded filibeg which he wore was of the Cameron tartan. He was sorry. Deterred, unwillingly, from the use of his dirk, the zealous Mackay next inquired whether he should not put the Catherine's body over his horse and bring him to Inverness, so that, dead or alive, he could be hanged at the cross there as a warning. No, leave him, poor devil, said Keith, turning his horse. No need for that. He's paid the price already. Let him lie. He felt curiously little resentment and wondered at the fact. Dougal Mackay, however, was not going to leave the musket lying, too. Taguna, she is Sassenach, he announced, examining it. Take it, then, said Keith. Come, we must get on to the general's hut before this mist grows thicker. So they rode away leaving the baffled assailant staring into vacancy, his dirk still gripped in his hand, and under his head the heather and flower before its time. Once more the road mounted, then fell by a long, steep gradient. The general's hut, a small and very unpretentious hostelry, of the kind known as a creel house, was at Beleskin, down on its lower levels, and before Keith reached it he could see that its outbuildings were occupied by soldiers.
they were probably Major Guthrie's detachment. Indeed, as he dismounted, a uniformed figure which he knew came round the corner of the inn, but it stopped dead on seeing him. Then, with no further sign of recognition, turned abruptly and disappeared again. It was Lieutenant Patton. So these were Guthrie's men, and he could hear more of Ardroy. But he would have preferred to hear it from Patton rather than from Guthrie, and wished that he had been quick enough to stop that young man. The first person whom Keith saw when he entered the dirty little parlour was Guthrie himself, or rather, the back of him, just sitting down to table. "'Come away, Foster. Is that you?' he called out. "'Quick now. The brose is getting cold.' Receiving no response, he turned round. "'Oh, Dodd, tis Major Wyndham!' Keith came forward, perforce. "'Good evening, Major Guthrie. Yes, I'm on my way back to Inverness.' "'Back from Perth, eh?' commented Guthrie. "'By the high road this time, then, I'm thinking. "'Sit you down, Major, and Lucky, whatever she calls herself, shall bring another cover. "'Ah, here comes Foster. "'Let me present Captain Foster of my regiment to you, Major Wyndham. "'Where's yon long-legged Berkey of a Patton?' "'Not coming to supper, sir,' replied Captain Foster, saluting the new arrival. "'He begs you to excuse him. He has a letter to write, or—' He's feeling indisposed. I forget which. Oh, indeed, said Guthrie, raising his sandy eyebrows. He was well enough, and free of correspondence, a wild sign. However, it's an ill wind. <laughs> you can the rest. Major Wyndham can have his place and his meat. Keith sat down, with as good a grace as he could command, at the rough, clothless table. This foster was presumably the officer whose bed he had occupied in the camp, a man more of Guthrie's stamp than of Patton's, but better mannered. Lieutenant Patton's excuse for absence, coupled with his abrupt disappearance, was significant, but why should the young man not wish to meet Major Keith Wyndham? Perhaps because the latter had got him into trouble, after all, over his philanthropy. Between the three, the talk ran on general topics, and it was not until the meal was half over that Guthrie suddenly said, "'Well, Major,' I brought in your Cameron friend after you left. Keith murmured that he was glad to hear it. But I got little for my pains, continued Guthrie, pouring himself out a glass of wine. Only his second, for, to Keith's surprise, he appeared to be an abstemious man. He set down the bottle and looked hard at the Englishman. But you yourself were no luckier, it seems. Keith returned his look. I'm afraid that I do not understand. Oh, you see, I ken you went back to the shieling, yon nicht. Yes, I imagined that you would discover it, said Keith coolly. I trust that you received my message of apology for departing without taking leave of you. Oh, your message of apology, repeated Major Guthrie. <laughs> Unfortunately, you did not apologize for the richt offence. You should have apologized for stealing a march on me, a hint my back. It was a pocky notion, yon. Was it not, Captain Foster? I must repeat that I am completely in the dark as to your meaning, Major Guthrie, said Keith, in growing irritation. Is not he the innocent man? <laughs> but I forgive you, Major, since you gained nothing by ganging back. Gained, ejaculated Keith. What do you mean, sir? I did not go back to the ceiling to gain anything. I went. <laughs> Aye, I ken what you said you gave for 
interrupted Guthrie with a wink. It was devilish canny, as I said, and deceived the rebel himself for a while. All yon ride in the nicht just to take him food and dress his wounds. And when you were there tending him so kindly, you never spared about Lochiel and what he kent of him, and where the chief might be hiding, did you? And never deny it, Major, for the rebel did not, when I put it to him. Oh, you devil! exclaimed Keith, springing up. What did you say to him about me? Guthrie kept his seat, and pulled down Captain Foster, who, murmuring, a gentleman, gentleman, had risen too. Oh, no need to be so distroubled, Captain Foster. I'm not. That's for them that have uneasy consciences. And what did I say to him? Why, I tell him the truth, Major Wyndham. Why you set such store on saving his life, and how you thought he might be persuaded to drop a hint about Lochiel. For by, he did not believe that at first. And Keith caught his breath. You told him those lies. <laughs> to his face, and he believed. He could get no further. Oh, lies, were they? asked Guthrie, leaning over the table. Oh, you never advised me to bring him into camp to complete my knowledge. Hey, I have you there, fine. How well, I did my best, Major Wyndham. None can do more. But I doubt he has the laugh of us, the gallant, for he tells me nothing, either by hints or any other gate, all the time I had him in my care. So I even sent him with a bit report to Fort Augustus, and there he is the now, as you may have heard, if you spared news of him when he came by. And Keith had turned very white. I might have known that you would play some dirty trick or other, he said, and flung straight out of the room. Fool, unspeakable fool that he was, not to have foreseen something of this kind with a man of Guthrie's stamp. He had had moments of uneasiness at the thought of Ardroy's probable interview with him, but he had never anticipated anything quite so base as this. Take me to Lieutenant Patton at once, he said peremptorily to the first soldier he came across. The man led him towards a barn, looming through the mist at a little distance. The door was ajar, and Keith went in, to see a dimly lit space with trusses of straw laid down in rows for the men, and at one end three horses, his own among them, with a soldier watering them. The young lieutenant, his hands behind his back, was watching the process. Keith went straight up to him. "'Can I have a word with you alone, Mr. Patton?' The young man stiffened and flushed, and then, with obvious reluctance, ordered the soldier out. And when the man with his clanging buckets had left the building, Patton stood rather nervously smoothing the flank of one of the horses, and not at all anxious to talk. "'Mr. Patton,' said Keith, without preamble, "'what devil's work went on in your camp over the prisoner from Ben Loy?' And then, at sight of the look on Patton's face, he cried out, "'Oh, good God, man, do you think that I had a hand in it, "'and is that why you would not break bread with me?' Lieutenant Patton looked at the ground. "'I... indeed I found it hard to believe that you could act so, "'when you seemed so concerned for the prisoner, but... "'Oh, in heaven's name, let us have this out,' cried Keith. "'What did Major Guthrie say to Mr. Cameron?' He appears to have tried to make him believe an infamous thing of me, and that I went back to the sheiling that night, merely in order to get information out of him. Surely he did not succeed in making him think so, even if he succeeded with you. Answer me, if you please. 
The younger man seemed very ill at ease. Oh, I cannot say, sir, what Mr. Cameron believed about you in the end. He certainly refused, and indignantly, to believe it at first. Oh, he cannot have believed it, said Keith passionately. In the end, how long, then, did Major Guthrie have him in his custody? He kept him for twenty-four hours, sir, in order to see if he would make any disclosures about Lochiel. And Lieutenant Patton added, in a very dry tone, turning away and busying himself with a horse's headstall, a course which it seems that you yourself advised. Keith gave a sound like a groan. Did the Major tell Mr. Cameron that also? Patton nodded. Yes, he did, and more, too. Whether true or not, I've no means of judging. Keith had the sensation that the barn, or something less material, was closing in round him. This honest boy, too. Look here, Mr. Patton, I will be frank with you. I was so desperately afraid that Ardor would be left there to die in the shielding, that I did suggest to Major Guthrie that it might be of advantage to bring him into camp, though I knew that he would have his trouble for nothing. Though I unfortunately recommended that course, I was perfectly certain that Mr. Cameron would not give the slightest inkling of any knowledge that he might have. No, it was plain from the beginning that he would not, said the young man, and that was why. He broke off. If Mr. Cameron is a friend of yours, it is a good thing that you were not in our camp that morning. Or, no, perhaps a misfortune, because you might have succeeded in stopping it sooner. I could not. "'Succeeded in stopping what?' asked Keith. Then the inner flavour of some of Guthrie's recent words began to be apparent to him. He caught Patton by the arm. "'You surely do not mean that Major Guthrie resorted to—to to violent measures. It's impossible.' Thus captured, the young soldier turned and faced him. "'Reassure yourself, sir,' he said quickly, seeing the horror and disgust on his companion's face. He could not carry them out. The prisoner was in no state for it. He could only threaten and—question. We threatened to shoot him, after all. No, not to shoot him, to flog him. And as Keith gave an exclamation and loosed his hold, Patton added, and he went very near doing it, too. Threatened to flog him. Mr. Patton, you are jesting, said Keith incredulously. Flog a badly wounded prisoner, and a gentleman, a chieftain, to boot. I'm not jesting, sir. I wish I were. But I am thankful to say that it was not carried out. Now, if you will excuse me, Major Wyndham, I must be about my duties. His tone indicated that he would be glad to leave a distasteful subject. But Keith made a movement to bar his passage. Mr. Patton, forgive my insistence, but your duties must wait a little. You cannot leave the matter there. For my own sake I must know what was said to Mr. Cameron. You see how nearly it concerns my honour. I implore you to try to recall everything that passed. Reluctantly, the young man yielded. Very well, sir, but I'd best speak to the sergeant to ensure that we are not disturbed, for this barn is the men's quarters. He went out to give an order. Hardly knowing what he did, Keith turned to his horse, busy pulling hay from the rack, and looked him over to see that Mackay had rubbed him down properly. Threatened with flogging. You and Cameron. Patton came back, closed the door, and brought up a couple of pails, which he inverted and suggested as seats. You must be tired, Major, after your long ride, 
and I'm afraid that this will be a bit of a sediment. So Keith sat down in the stall to hear what his ill-omened suggestion had brought on the man whom he had saved. End of section 17